Have you ever stopped to think about all the money that is spent on sin? It is, it is an astronomical amount. I'm not just talking about the money that, that is spent to do sinful things, such as buying a bunch of alcoholic beverages to get drunk or buying pornographic materials, etc. I'm also talking about the money that is spent to deal with the consequences of sin. There are literally, no exaggeration, there are literally billions of dollars spent every year on sin and the ramifications of sin. There are billions of dollars spent every year on law enforcement officials who are hired to stop murder and theft and violence and all sorts of crime. There are millions of dollars spent to house and feed convicted criminals. There are millions of dollars spent to try to undo drunkenness and alcoholism and its consequences. And there are billions of dollars spent every year on health and medical issues, which would be completely unnecessary if sin weren't in this universe. Sin is extremely costly in more ways than one. Think about it for a moment. If it weren't for sin and all the consequences of sin and dealing with all the ramifications of sin, this world that we live in would be unimaginably prosperous for everyone. An unfathomable amount of money is spent on pursuing sin, trying to undo sin, the results of sin, and the built-in consequences of sin in our universe. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. If it weren't for sin in our world, there would be no disease and no death. Just think about the amount of money that is spent on trying to prevent disease and death or trying to overcome disease and death. It's inconceivable. So much of our lives and so much of our resources are spent on those very issues. Unfortunately, we don't often make the connection in our minds between sin and disease or sin and death, but we ought to. Every time we stand at the grave of a loved one, it ought to be a striking reminder to us of how awful sin is. Every time we hear about or experience sickness, it ought to be a reminder to us of how much we ought to hate and despise and detest sin in our world. Now, I'm not saying that an individual sin leads to disease or death in someone's life, if that were the case, we'd, we'd all be sick all the time or already dead. I'm saying that sickness and death are in our world and all around us because of sin. Sickness and death are consequences of the fall of mankind into sin. If there had been no sin, there would be no sickness and no death. That's one of the reasons why Jesus dealt with sickness so much throughout his ministry. He healed people out of compassion, and he healed people to validate his credentials as Messiah, but he also dealt with sickness because it is a tangible reminder of our deeper need, which is our sin problem. 
In fact, sometimes the scripture uses the analogy of sickness to describe our spiritual problem of sinfulness. Let me show you this as we begin our time in the Word this morning. Turn back with me into Hebrew Scripture, the book of Isaiah, before we resume our series in Mark chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 1, after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah chapter 1. And notice how the prophet Isaiah opens his powerful prophetic book. He says this in verse 2, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have become closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. That is a description of rampant sinfulness. Sinfulness here in this passage is described or sort of illustrated as sickness. Wounds and bruises and open oozing sores. Turn over to chapter 53 of this same prophecy. Chapter 53 of Isaiah. Beginning in verse 4. This is, of course, one of the most famous of all of Isaiah's chapters. Very strong messianic chapter depicting the crucifixion of our Lord. Notice verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs. That is literally in the Hebrew the word sickness, or plural sicknesses, but most of our English translations don't render it that way because in the context it is clear that the focus is on the Messiah dying for our sins. So it's used in an analogous way, just like we saw in chapter 1. He has borne these sores, these griefs, these sicknesses. He's referring to our sins. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripe or wound we are healed. Here again, spiritual forgiveness and restoration is described in terms of sickness and healing. Isaiah pictures us as sick, destitute, needing healing, but it's all in a spiritual sense. So that is why I say that Jesus healed out of compassion and he healed people to validate his credentials as the Messiah, but... He also dealt with sickness 
because it is a tangible reminder of our deeper need, which is our sin problem. With that in mind, let's turn to our text in Mark chapter 4, back over to the New Testament, the second book of the New Testament, as we resume our series in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 5. Please follow along as I read verses 21 through 43. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came to him, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians, she had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up And she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing it in himself, that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. In spite of all the miracles we have seen thus far in the book of Mark, the healing of the leper, the healing of serious fever, casting out demons, walking on, a, on, on, walking on the water, restoring a paralyzed man, and other miraculous works, in spite of all of those, there is a sense in which they are all meaningless if Jesus can't do anything about death. After all, death is the ultimate enemy. Death is always a tragedy, regardless of the circumstances and regardless of the spiritual condition of the one who has died. 
Death is always a tragedy. Certainly we can find comfort in the fact that death sometimes releases a person from suffering. And certainly we can find comfort in the fact that death releases the believer to go be with the Lord Jesus Christ. But death is always an intrusion because it ends a life and it stops relationships or interrupts relationships. Death was not a part of God's original creation. It is an unwelcome invader, an unwelcome intruder. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 refers to death as the last enemy. So if Jesus can't do anything about death, then there's a sense in which all the other displays of power are only temporary. They only postpone the inevitable, death, and the end, and the ultimate destruction. But Jesus did prove he could do something about death. He raised this precious little girl from the dead. And along the way, he graciously granted healing to a desperate woman who had battled a serious infirmity for 12 long years. Let's see what the Lord will teach us as we consider this text together. Notice how Mark begins it in verse 21. He says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. So Jesus and his men crossed back over to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and a multitude was waiting for him. Verse 22 says, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. We know from Luke's account and from what Mark says later in this that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, just a young gal. Verse 24 tells us, so Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. We don't know how far Jesus had to travel to get to where Jairus' daughter was. And we don't know how many times Jesus was stopped or sidetracked by the multitudes along the way. We don't know the time frame. But we do know about one important interruption because Mark tells us about it in detail in the next few verses. He inserts it at this point. Verse 25 sort of changes the story. It says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Insert this story into the middle of the account of Jesus raising this little girl, which indicates that it did take place along the way to the home of Jairus. Needless to say, this was a serious physical condition that this woman had, and it may have been from a tumor or some other disease, but not only was it a serious condition physically, it also would have been a serious spiritual condition and social issue. Let me explain. This continual flow of blood would have rendered her ceremonially unclean, excluding her from the synagogue and from the temple. As a result, it is almost certain that she would have been ostracized by society, even her own family. 
Now get that picture. This was an abject woman with a deplorable condition. In addition to that, she had desperately tried any and every recommendation from a variety of physicians, and some of these suggestions were evidently harsh and counterproductive. Mark tells us in verse 26, she had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Understandably, this woman was desperate. She had tried everything known to her, and she had depleted all her resources. Therefore, when she heard that Jesus was in the area, she determined to get to him somehow or some way. Nothing was going to stop her. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Both Matthew and Luke tell tell us that she only touched the hem of his garment. All commentators agree that this is a reference to one of the tassels that were sewn to the corners of a garment in order to remind the wearer to obey God's commandments as prescribed in the law of God in Numbers 15.38 and Deuteronomy 22.12. She just touched one of the tassels hanging from Jesus' garment. Maybe she touched that to keep from defiling Jesus. Because from what we read in the next verse, she realized she didn't actually have to touch his person. She, didn't, she knew she didn't have to touch his body. Verse 28, Mark explains, For she said, this is in her own mind, in her own heart, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. That is remarkable faith. But we need to be careful at this point as to what application we draw from this for our own lives. Here's the point. Having strong faith doesn't mean that we will always experience miraculous results. Having strong faith doesn't guarantee that. Hebrews 11 makes it clear that not all people of faith experience miraculous deliverance from their problems. Some of the great heroes of the faith were tortured, Hebrews 11 says. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword, according to Hebrews eleven thirty six and 37. So don't assume, don't set yourself up by assuming that having strong faith automatically means miraculous experiences. In this case, by the sovereign plan of God, Jesus honored this woman's faith by healing her. The Lord always honors faith in him, always, but not always in the same way and at the same time. Therefore, we need to exercise caution regarding what principle of application we draw from this story. On this occasion, the Lord in his own providential purposes granted healing to this woman. Verse 29 tells us immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Can you imagine the overwhelming sense of relief and release that this woman felt at that moment? No, you can't. 
None of us can. Unless you have battled a debilitating illness for 12 years that has left you poor, sick, and socially isolated and alienated. The Lord, in essence, gave to this woman her life back. He gave back her life at this point. Verse 30 tells us, And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Jesus was asking this question to draw this woman out of the crowd to commend her. To commend her example. But the disciples were dumbfounded by this question. Verse 31 tells us, His disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you and you say who touched me? We probably don't picture the ministry of Jesus in this way. But from what we have already seen in Mark, this was not uncommon. Back in chapter 3, we saw that Jesus told his disciples that a small boat should be should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Now think about that. Think about so many people out of control wanting to get to Jesus that they might crush him. Think about what this woman had to go through to get to him, to get on the inside of this throng. The crowds pressed at Jesus so much that there was actually the possibility that they might crush him to death. No wonder his disciples responded this way. Lord, are you kidding? You see the multitude thronging you. People are pressing you from all sides, and you you want to know who touched you? Verse 32, And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. The imperfect tense here indicates that this wasn't just one look. I mean, in other words, he didn't just turn around and look. Only the NIV brings out the idea by translating this verse in this manner. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Picture that. Jesus is turning around and he's scanning the crowd. He's scanning the multitude. In other words, this wasn't an instantaneous act. He didn't just turn around and glance. He's looking. He's looking. He's he's observing. And remember, Jesus has no time to spare because the daughter of Jairus was about to die any moment. He said when he appealed to Jesus that his daughter was at the point of death. But he took time to identify this woman and draw her out. Verse 33, But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. If you can read this without emotion and compassion for this woman, your heart is pretty hard. She had battled a serious illness for 12 long years with no end in sight. It was one that made her physically sick socially alienated and financially destitute. So she pushed through the crowd somehow. You wonder how she had the strength to push through the throng. She pushed through to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And when she did, she thought she was going to get in trouble for doing so. As a result, she fell down before Jesus and confessed what she had done. 
But she didn't need to confess anything in the sense of confessing a wrong. Jesus just wanted to affirm her, commend her. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The Greek word that Jesus uses here strongly indicates that this woman was not only made well physically, she was also saved spiritually by her faith in Jesus. That is further supported by the fact that Jesus addressed her as daughter, which interestingly is the only time in his ministry that he used this term in the gospel records. This is it right here. What amazing grace our Lord showed to this dear woman. And to think that it was merely along the way. What I mean is, this wasn't even the focus of the Lord's attention. He's headed to the house of Jairus to miraculously restore his daughter. And yet along the way, this happens. But this was, this was no accidental interruption This was the sovereign mercy of our Lord, the giver of life. He gave back to this woman her life, as it were. He gave life to this woman who had been stripped of it because of the heinous consequences of sin in our world. And he's about to give life again to a little girl whose life had ended prematurely. Verse 35, the story resumes now. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Once again, this this is not something we can imagine unless you've had the horrendous experience of being told that your little child has died. Jairus probably felt like his heart was going to fall out of his chest. His little girl was dead. The implication is that he thought that, well, if Jesus gets here before she dies, we can save her, but, you know, time is of the essence, and now it's too late. She's dead, gone. Verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, He said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Jairus had demonstrated faith by coming to Jesus in the first place. So Jesus was basically encouraging him to maintain his faith. It it was as if the Lord was saying to him, Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Dealing with death is no more difficult for me than dealing with sickness. Don't. Don't assume it's too late. Verse 37 tells us, And Jesus permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. If you've read through the gospel accounts, then you know that it was not uncommon for Jesus to grant unique opportunities for these three men to be a part of miraculous events. For example, these three men were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration to witness that event. These three men were taken on the final night to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed and poured out his heart to the Father. We aren't told why Jesus singled out these three men, but it was probably related to his training purposes for each of 
the various disciples. So he calls these three further, to go further with him, to see what's going to happen. Verse 38, Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. Matthew also tells us that there were flute players present for this occasion. It may sound strange to us when we read of flute players and a noisy crowd being assembled at a time of death, but this was the customary way of mourning in that first century culture. What sounds even more strange is when we hear that the crowd almost always contained a number of professional mourners. Professional paid mourners. These were women who wailed in an anguished manner while repeating the name of the one who had just died. As you can imagine, the atmosphere was chaotic, unlike the somber settings that usually surround death in our culture. So Jesus comes upon the scene, and Mark tells us in verse 39, when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now understand that Jesus was not denying her death when he said this. He was simply alluding to the fact that he was about to raise her. He said the same kind of thing when Lazarus died. John 11, 11 through 14 tells us, These things Jesus said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. This is parallel to what is going on in this text. The girl was clearly dead. <clears throat> but her death was only temporary because Jesus was about to raise her. And that's why Jesus referred to her death as sleeping. Interestingly, the apostle Paul picked up on this phraseology and he used it in several of his letters to refer to death for the Christian. He calls it sleeping in Jesus. Because our death isn't permanent, Paul refers to a Christian's death as sleeping. But when he says that, don't misunderstand, he's not referring to the soul. He never uses that term in connection with the soul. There's no such thing as soul sleep. He's referring to the body. The body sleeps in the grave and awaits resurrection, but this little girl's body didn't even go to the grave. She had been dead for such a short time that there hadn't even been time for any kind of funeral or burial. So Jesus announced his intention to raise her by saying she's just sleeping. The response of the gathered crowd is recorded in the next verse. Notice the very first phrase of verse 40. It says, and they ridiculed him. They laughed at him. After all, these were the professionals. They knew she was dead. What is he trying to do, rob us of a paycheck? That's probably what they're thinking. They thought Jesus' statement was absurd. They knew he was dead, she was dead, but Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. He always knows what he's talking about, even when it doesn't make any sense to us. 
He always knows what he's talking about. That Don't ever forget that, beloved. He always knows what he's talking about. Even when it doesn't make sense. When he says something in his word, you can count on it, even if you can't understand it. For example, in John 5, 28 and 29, he said this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's what Jesus said will happen, and that's what will happen. Someday, all of humanity will hear his voice and come forth. Now, at this point, some people object. They say, but how can that happen? I mean, some people have been lost at sea and eaten by sharks. How's Jesus going to call forth their body from the grave? Some people have been burned to death in a fire, completely consumed. How is Jesus going to raise that body from the dead? Some people have been blown up by a huge bomb or explosion. How can Jesus raise their bodies from the dead? I don't have to be able to explain it to believe it. I can't explain electricity, but I use it. When I walk into a dark room, I don't stand in the dark until I can understand electricity. I turn on the switch. Jesus always knows what he's talking about, even when it doesn't make any sense to us. Mark tells us here they ridiculed him. Just like the world does today when they hear what he has to say in his word. But ridicule or not, it's the truth. Jesus knows what he's talking about. I should mention that just about all of our other English translations render this phrase, but they laughed at him. And of course, the laughing was a laughing of ridicule. The very fact that they laughed at Jesus and ridiculed him shows that this girl was clearly dead. That's important to emphasize because some people want to explain away this miracle by saying, no, no, this, you know, she just passed out and Jesus revived her or something along those lines. No. This girl was dead, and this group of professionals knew she was dead. That's why they reacted the way they did. But their irreverence toward the Lord and their unbelief disqualified them from seeing what he was about to do. Because Mark tells us as verse 41 continues, then he took the child, or, or verse 40, then they ridiculed him, but when he had put them all outside, he took the father and mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Jesus dismissed the crowd first. Then he graciously and powerfully brought this little girl back to life. Verse 41, he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And with that, she arose. There was no fanfare no ostentatiousness because Jesus wasn't trying to show off. And we'll see that even clearer in just a moment. Verse 42 says, Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. Beloved, that phrase, that phrase lets us know how we ought to respond to this story. It's so easy for us to read this as simply print on a page and some ancient story that happened long ago is sort of like maybe a fairy tale or something like that. Enter into the wonder of this event. 
Try to enter into this. This 12-year-old girl was dead. And Jesus brought her back to life. No wonder they were overcome with great amazement. And then Mark adds this, verse 43, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. This is a a common type of instruction that Jesus gives. We've seen this already several times in Mark. Jesus did not want to be known as merely a miracle worker. He didn't want to be known as merely a healer of diseases. Sure, he had compassion on people, and he healed their sicknesses. And in some cases like this one, he even raised people from the dead. But those physical needs weren't the primary focus of his ministry. He came to address something much deeper. He came to bring the gospel of salvation, which addresses the most fundamental need of every human heart. That's what he wanted to be known for. That's the reputation he wanted to have. That's why he often pulled away from the multitudes like he did in John 6. After feeding the 5,000 with just five barley loaves and two small fish, the people flocked to Jesus. And John makes it clear in John 6 they did that because they thought he might continue to give them free food. They wanted free food. So he tried to redirect their focus John 5, 26 and 27 says, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus was saying to them, your focus is wrong. You're enamored with physical issues when you ought to be concerned about your eternal destiny. They were more interested in physical comforts than they were with their eternal destiny. They were more interested in their stomachs than with their souls. They were living for the here and now instead of the hereafter. As one man put it, they were moved not by full hearts but by full bellies. So Jesus addressed them firmly when he said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. They were focused on the wrong thing. Jesus knows that is always the tendency of the human heart, which is one of the reasons why he often instructed people not to make his miracles known. Don't tell anyone. Don't make it known. Jesus knows the potential of the human heart to become fixated on physical issues to the neglect of the more significant spiritual issues. However, however, that didn't cause him to refuse to minister to people on the physical level. Yet he always desired for people to see beyond the physical to the spiritual needs of their hearts. But let me tell you, it was an uphill climb for Jesus. It was an uphill climb. The word that got out about Jesus was not, hey, there is this man who can deal with your sin problem. He can forgive your sins and give you victory over sin. No, the word that got out was, hey, there's this man that can heal the sick and raise the dead. That's not the focus Jesus wanted people to have. So here he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. 
Beloved, Jesus came as the giver of life. On occasion, he gave physical life like he did when he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead, but far more significant than that, he came to give spiritual life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. In John 10.10, he said, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That's why Jesus came. Do you have this life? What is your focus? Is it your physical needs, your physical issues, or your spiritual ones? What is your preoccupation and focus? Let's bow together as we close this morning. And I remind you again that Jesus came to give life, spiritual life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. If you're here today, you don't have that spiritual life, you don't have that new life, you don't have that life of forgiveness, Get your eyes off of all of the physical things around you, as important as they may be, as as significant as they may be, and get your focus on that issue, that you need spiritual life. You need new life in Christ. You need the new life that comes when your sins are dealt with and forgiven. And call out to Jesus this morning for forgiveness and new life. And child of God, what is your focus? Are you totally preoccupied with physical issues, the issues of life, again, as important as they may be? Or is your focus on the more significant spiritual issues of life? Father, what an amazing account. This is just, it's almost impossible for us to try to describe it with words or comprehend it. To see this woman who had this flow of blood for 12 years and to see your son, the Lord Jesus, give her her life back, as it were. And then to literally give life back to this little, precious 12-year-old girl. What an amazing Savior and Lord. And we know from the way this account closes that Jesus doesn't want us to merely look at that with awe and amazement, and get fixated on these physical issues because he strictly commanded them that no one should know it. Because he wants our preoccupation, our focus, our understanding to be guided along the spiritual lines, the spiritual realm. So may our exposure to your word this morning do that in our lives. Whether it's someone here who doesn't know Christ and needs to surrender to him, or someone who does know Christ but is focused on the wrong thing. Work that grace in each of our hearts and lives. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.